Hello, listeners. It's Jennifer James of the Common Mystics Podcast. If you're wondering how to tap into your own Spideys, I've got great news for you. The first ever Common Mystics online class will be offered virtually in February 2024. The Psychic Clairs is a five-part workshop designed to awaken your psychic senses and provide you with the feedback and tools you need to take them to the next level. For more information on the Common Mystics Psychic Clairs Workshop, email us at commonmystics at gmail.com and include the subject line Psychic Workshop. And now, on to the show. On this episode of Common Mystics, we discuss one of the worst flood-related disasters in the history of Pennsylvania. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are common mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story takes us to oil country, Pennsylvania. That's right, Jen. I think this is actually like the second worst disaster story. Oh, Oh. Yeah, in the history of our country. But that's okay. Leave it. Leave it. Okay. It's okay. All right. Yeah. I thought you were going to okay. talk about, like, it's the worst disaster we've ever discussed. Well, it certainly gives me nightmares. Like, mm-hmm. this is, this seriously hits home as far as how I am triggered and, like, what my fears are. Mm. This is seriously one of my fears. Okay. Well, let's. Just in general. Let's get into it. Okay. Tell me everything. Where were we? We were headed to New England. We were. And we were east on 80 Mm -hmm. in this fine country of ours. We were at the funniest thing. This never happens to us. We almost ran out of gas. Literally. Literally. Uh, How did you let that happen? Like, I... I, Usually, usually, if you know, because I'm crazy, I have, like, the safety thing where, like, I have to get more gas when we're on a road trip around a quarter tank. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if we stopped to go to the washroom, right, but right. we never stopped. Yeah. We just kept driving. We were so excited <sighs> to be going to New England. We just kept, we were just running down. Yeah. And literally, I looked down and it was like, you're not going to make it much farther, yeah. girls. It was yeah. so bizarre. That light came on. That's the scariest thing. <laughs> like, my anxiety goes through the roof when the light goes on. It wasn't just that the light came on. The light had been on. <laughs> like, now Jill, it was like we're on I'm fumes. glad you didn't tell me that because I probably would have pissed my pants in the passenger side. <laughs> That's fair. Anyway. That's fair. Yeah. So we were around a town called Emlington, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And f- when we first saw Emlington, we saw it from a distance, like mm-hmm. – as if it, we were on, I believe we were actually elevated and we saw the town below to our left and we're like, well, that's our town. Mm-hmm. We got to get off there. I'm sure they have gas. Yeah, we knew it. We knew we had to go there and it looked so quaint and inviting. Like super cute. Like, you know, those miniature Christmas village scenes with all the little houses that have the little light bulbs on the inside. That's Mm -hmm. how it looked to me. It was super inviting. It looked super quaint. And I just knew that's where we're going. That's where we're going. Mm -hmm. And let's hope they have a gas station (laughs) as soon as we roll into town. They did. Okay. So we drive into town and I am totally feeling oil barren. Mm. And again, it's it's weird. I know gas was on my mind because we need to gas, right. but it it feels like we were in the right place for gas. 
Literally, uh-huh. right? Yeah, for real. And I was picking up on not only gas, but also lumber. Like the place felt so rich in resources. I was like, and there's gas and there's lumber. You know what I mean? I just had that yes. super rich feeling of resources on my mind. So I, as we were pulling, we got gas and we were kind of driving around this little town. And as we were driving around, I, in my mind's eye, was seeing a scene from a PBS documentary Mm. about a dam bursting and a town flooding Mm. downstream. And I didn't know why it was in my mind's eye, but that's what I was picking up on. You? Well, I had the knowledge of many deaths particularly many deaths of children. Children's deaths was in the forefront of my mind. Yeah. Never good. Sad. Super sad. So we stopped the car on Main Street Mm -hmm. and we're like, we need to get out and we need to look around. We need to explore this town. But what was interesting is that we were both feeling like we needed to go at a higher Yes, higher ground. We needed to get up. Like we were looking at buildings that were literally up on elevated ground. We're like, we need to go up. We need to go up. Exactly. And we were trying to get up, (laughs) but it was the craziest thing. We could not do it. It was like every street we turned on was a dead end. It didn't even look like streets. We're like, how is this? Like, what? Are, yeah, it looked like What's a bunch of driveways. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It w- didn't make any sense. Every street was a dead end. Right. Every street looked like it was a driveway. It was really. That we should not be in. It was so frustrating because we knew we had to get up, but we couldn't. And every time we turned, it was another dead end. It was a super crazy experience, and we finally gave up. It felt so yeah. trapped. Yeah. So we were definitely pulled uphill, but also north. We got the feeling yeah. that north, going north, was really important. We had to get north and uphill. Mm-hmm. And there was this sense around the town. As we were driving, I felt two dual energies. Okay. One, it felt very sad, mm. right? The sense of sadness, but also a sense of pride. Yes. Like the ghosts around there were so super proud of this area and who they are and where they came from. Mm-hmm. So it was like this duality I was feeling. I was really surprised that I was picking up on an explosion, an explosion that had to do with gases, like a gaseous sort of explosion. Mm. And then there was a name, a name that both of us picked up on at the same time. That's right. We were driving and I saw a sign that said something Crawford. And I'm like, you need to write that down. Crawford seems significant. And what'd you say? I said, I was just writing that down. Like as I was writing C-R-A, you're like, write down Crawford. Crawford is important. And I'm like, dude, get out of my head. (laughs) So we decide because we can't get anywhere in the car at this point because we're just hitting dead end after dead end after dead end. We get out and we do a little bit of walking around the main street of the area. Describe to our lovely audiences what we're feeling as we're we're checking out the vibes of the town. I think you were picking up on the fact that the river seemed important and the feeling of flooding, but I think you were almost hesitant to even bring that up because, of course, rivers flood. Do you know what I mean? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, exactly. that seems cheap. It was, 
Exactly, because we're right there. Right. And of course, you're like, because the river is directly like parallel with Main Street. And we're like, well, of course, heavy rains, something's going to flood, right, right? Right. So that did feel super cheap. But as we were walking around town, another breadcrumb was there were these oil heritage signs, which oh. was like, oh my God, we are super duper psychic right now. <laughs> yeah, for real, for real. And then I had this crazy drive. I had to find the cemetery. I had to find specifically bodies in the cemetery, people who died in the cemetery. And I can't explain it other than I was driven. We have to find the cemetery and find people who died in the disaster. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and it, again, usually our pursuit in finding a cemetery in an area is because we want more information. But you were on, a, like, we need to find the bodies. Yes. You you were looking for I was straight looking up bodies. for bodies who died in an exa- in a disaster, specifically that mm-hmm. explosion that I was feeling. Very interesting. And so we did find two different cemeteries, and guess what? On dead ends again. It was so crazy. It was so weird. It's like every place was you felt like there was no getting out. Right. Like you drive into a cemetery, and the cemetery is adjacent to another cemetery. But it looks like one huge cemetery. It doesn't look like two different cemeteries. Right, but it's not. So we are, <laughs> but it's not. You're cut off again, dead end after dead end. It's the most frustrating thing. Right. And so we didn't really find anything in the cemeteries. And it was really, really frustrating. But there was one name that stood out to us both. Grief. Yeah, the name Grief on a headstone. And that really, yeah, so- yeah that really kind of pointed us in, in the direction of there was a lot of grief surrounding the location of bodies somehow mm-hmm. that had to do with this whole situation that happened near near this area. And as always, we are confused, writing notes, right. and we needed – we were still – drawn north, Mm -hmm. but we needed to get our tails into a different area of Pennsylvania so we can spend the night because we had a long day of driving ahead the next day. So we didn't have time to poke around in, you know, north central Pennsylvania. So we had to get to our hotel room, but that's definitely where we wanted to go. Right. And I would say this, we already waste a lot of times on a lot of dead ends, right? Yeah. And what, I know we're saying it very quickly here, but we spent like an afternoon going through a town full of dead ends right. that it was like, I don't have time to be fucking around here yeah. anymore. Like we need to get going. Yeah. hundred percent. Well said. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me a little bit about our Emlinton, Pennsylvania. Give me a little bit of the history. I will. Emlinton is a borough in Clarion and Venango counties in northwestern Pennsylvania. And it is known as the gateway to oil country. Who knew? Not us. It's called the gateway to oil country due to its significant historical connection to the oil industry. Personally, I had no idea that Pennsylvania had such a rich history in oil. Zero clue. But Emlinton is strategically located at the southern tip of what's known as Pennsylvania's oil region. And Mm. Jill, it's the site of the world's first commercial oil well. Wow. In the world. Wow. Yeah. Now- Can I just say something? Sure. I wonder if this experiment with like driving around, using the spirits to find us a verifiable story unknown to us. Previously unknown to us. Oh, yeah. We forgot to tell people our intention. 
Well, my whole thing is like, if we weren't, (laughs) if we weren't so ignorant, I don't know if this would work because we're always fighting things we didn't know about. Right. Yeah. Good thing we're idiots. Yeah, exactly. Like we're like, well, I did not know. I did not notice. Like, of course, if we had any kind of education, sorry, mom, um, this may not work. This wouldn't work. Yeah. yeah. Oh my so God. Thank good God point. we're idiots. Okay. <laughs> All right. So there was it makes for good listening. <laughs> There's something called there was an oil boom during the 19th century. And Emlinton, Pennsylvania played a crucial role as a transit hub for the burgeoning oil industry there. Again, who knew? Not us. Who knew these things? <laughs> Definitely not us. Oil was extracted from the rich fields in the north. And this oil was transported through Emlinton to refineries in the South and earning it the nickname, the gateway to oil country. Mm -hmm. Got it. In fact, the region is so important in the history of oil in the United States that in 2004, Congress celebrated the region's pioneering role in America's oil boom, designating a 708-square-mile area stretching from Emlinton in the south to Titusville, Pennsylvania in the north as Oil Region National Heritage Area. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So literally, we were at the very edge of oil country. Wow. So tell me a little bit about oil country, how it bore a town called Titusville. Like, tell me about Titusville. Well, Titusville plays a really important part in the birth of this entire area. I don't believe you. In 1796... 1796, a man named Jonathan Titus settled along the banks of what is now Oil Creek. Mm. Titus named the village Edinburgh, but as it grew, the settlers just called it Titusville. I loved it. Right. I love that Uh about him. He's like, yeah, don't name it after me. And they're like, fuck that. You know, Mm -hmm. we're calling it Titusville. But it's your ville. I know. (laughs) The village was incorporated in 1849, and it was a slow-growing community. Until petroleum was discovered. Now, I say discovered by like in terms of the white settlers, but again, white people, we ain't the smartest. No, no, (laughs) as we prove again and again. But oil was known to exist there. See, it was like naturally just seeping from the ground. But wow. but there was no practical way to, like, get it and use it. You know what I mean? Like, you knew it was mm-hmm. there. It was just kind of oozing out. But So, like, the natives and the indigenous people and animals kind of steer cleared of, like, the black gold coming out of the ground? Well, actually, Native Americans in Pennsylvania, particularly the Iroquois and the Seneca tribes, were known to use the petroleum for different medicinal purposes long before the birth of the industrial petroleum industry. See, what do you mean medicinal purposes? Well, the Iroquois I- in particular would use it as a salve. So they would like apply it to their skin to for different reasons, like to soothe and heal minor wounds and burns. Petroleum was also used as a mosquito repellent. Now that I can see. Hell yeah. That would work. I can totally see that. That shit would work. I'm not going to try it, but that shit would work. I did try it. Shut Detour. up. Shut up. I swear. Right, we're writing this swear. down. And I will tell you, Officer Baker was not happy about it. Okay. Detour. So check us out in detours on our Patreon site because I have to hear about you slathering petroleum over yourself. 
No, Hold well, on. no. Right. I was talking about <laughs> no, no, no. Let's anyway. let's leave everyone with that image. <laughs> Check us out at, at Detours. If I'm gonna slather a substance, <laughs> it would be Crisco, baby. <laughs> I don't even know what True. to say. All right, so mosquito repellent. Moving on, and there because are- I'm finger looking good. And there yes, are I accounts am. of Native Americans teaching George Washington's troop to use oil to treat frostbite during the harsh winter months. I did not know that no, either. Me neither. That's way cool. Now, so way, way cool. So the native peoples knew that it was there. The settlers knew that it was there. You could see it seeping up from the ground. But in the late 1850s, the Seneca Oil Company was interested in trying to figure out if they could access it in a way that they could capitalize on the value of that natural resource. And they sent a man named Colonel Edwin L. Drake to start drilling on a piece of leased land just south of Titusville near what is now Oil Creek State Park. Okay, cool. It was here in Crawford County, Pennsylvania, during the hot summer month of August 1859, that Edwin Drake made an astounding discovery on the eastern bank of Oil Creek at the site of a natural oil seep. Drake hmm. struck oil at the surprisingly shallow depth of just 89 feet. Now, Jill, I looked this up, and most oil wells are typically between 5,000 to 10,000 feet deep. So the fact that Drake struck oil at just 89 feet is totally notable. Because it would be cheaper to get at the oil it's, and to extract mm-hmm. it. Drake's oil well heralded America's inaugural oil boom. And this initial reliable crude petroleum supply was the first commercially successful well established in the entire world. Wow. Yes. So what happened to Titusville? Well, this led to a dramatic and sudden increase in the application of oil in different industries, ranging from machine lubrication, waterproofing, providing heat and light, to serving as an essential raw material for various applications. And, of course, with this boom Thousands of people flocked to the industrial area, and it was known as the mm. Pennsylvania Oil Rush. And that That's makes crazy. sense. That makes sense because you would need people, you would need workers to build the infrastructure for this new industry, right? Yes. There, you right. would need drivers to transport product. You would need pipelines to be laid to move the flowing oil. You would need rails to be put down to create railroads. And the railroads were established and grew, which just brought more and more people to the area. Now, mm. between 1860 and 1870, the population of Titusville ballooned from 438 people to over 8,600 that's a growth of over 1,800%. I don't even know what I would do with myself. That just seems like in the 1800s, like it would be like, wow, we're just way too close. You guys need to back up, <laughs> right? Like I like I moved to the country for a reason and now here you all are, just chill. Well, that's the thing. People weren't moving to the country at that time. They were moving to the industry. They were moving to the jobs. They were moving to a settlement of people. Wow. Mm-hmm. It was so notable that in 1871, President Ulysses S. Grant visited Titusville to witness the growth of the region. Wow. Yeah, for real. What kind of people were coming to the area based on the type of industries that were booming in Titusville? 
a lot of workers were coming to the area to settle with their families. And one example was a man named Jacob Bingenheimer. His name is my name, too. I don't Sorry. think that's correct. You don't think it's? No. Mm-hmm. Um, Whenever you go out, the people always Really? Shout. Do you know that song? John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. Yeah, I know that song, but we're we're talking about Jacob Bingenheimer, and I feel like you're a little disrespectful right now. Really? Mm-hmm. I think it goes in the song. He was a German immigrant born in 1850, and he embarked on a journey with his family to the U.S. in 1854. He settled in Titusville, pursuing a career as a boiler maker. And a boiler okay. maker, go ahead. That's what I was going to ask you. I was like, boiler maker? What are we doing? A boilermaker constructs boilers or creates boilers. Making boilers was a vital component in the 19th century because steam engines powered various machines and trains and ships. So in order to have a working steam engine, you would need a boiler to heat up the water to create the steam. And so people like boilermakers who could make these boilers were in demand in the area in the 19th century during this boom. Not only were they vital to creating the boilers, but they were also vital to maintain the boilers and other kind of metals. Right. Exactly. Pretty cool. So tell me, Jacob, he arrives Titusville. It's 1870. He's only 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And he excelled at his profession as a boilermaker. He found love and he married a woman named Susan. And in 1873, they welcomed their first child, Jacob Jr., Eventually, the Vingenheimer family settled along the banks of Oil Creek in Titusville. So as their family was growing, they were moving around Titusville along the banks of Oil Creek. So over a period of years, they were at one location, they moved to another, about a half mile away from where they originated from, but they just kept moving around as their family grew. And their family, by the way, did grow. To how many children? Eight. They had eight Eight children. And they finally settled on the banks of Oil Creek in Titusville, the couple and their eight children together. He's a great example of the type of workers and families and men who would come to oil country to build their lives. Mm -hmm, For sure. Mm -hmm. He was one of many. He was. In addition to settlers like Jacob Bingenheimer, entrepreneurs were also flocking to oil country in the late 1800s. Like who? Like, give me an example. Okay. I, well, why don't I give you an example? One of the notable ones was a man named George Crawford. Who he? George Washington Crawford was born in 1861. He was a prominent American businessman in the late 19th and early 20th century. And he was a founder and executive of Columbia Gas and Electric. Okay, so what was his, like, whole claim to fame? Well, his landmark discovery was in 1881 when he struck natural gas while drilling a well on his property in Emlinton. Stop it. And Crawford's well was not the first to discover natural gas, but it was one of the most productive wells of the time. It spewed an enormous column of gas. Sounds like someone I know. Mm Mm-hmm. Indicating the detour, <laughs> detour, Jennifer in the Cadillac. That's all hey, I'm going to say. Rude. What? Really? What did you just say? <laughs> I said something. Yeah. Uh huh. Touche. Touche, me friend. All right. 
uh, the well spewed an enormous column of gas, indicating the vast gas reserves present there. And this marked the start of the natural gas boom in Pennsylvania. Holy cow, how many booms can Pennsylvania have? Well, let's recap it because we went through a lot. So let's put a button on it. All right, do it. it. Do it. No, you You do do it. it. The economical landscape of oil country. Tell me everything. Recap. Put a button. The economic landscape of oil country, which included the counties of Crawford, Venango, Clarion, in Pennsylvania, experienced significant transformation with this boom of oil and natural gas, and industrialization was spurred on by the abundance of the natural resources in the area, including lumber and riverways. And the industrial surge left an indelible mark on the region, shaping its economic identity and fostering growth in secondary industries such as manufacturing, transportation, and services. Okay, Jennifer, the stage is set. Tell me everything. No one could have imagined that a series of seemingly unrelated events in these communities would create a real ticking time bomb for Pennsylvania and its oil country. No, we were so upbeat up till now. Mm, okay, tell me. Okay, remember how Titusville is located north of Emlinton, where we were? Do I? Yes, I do remember that. Right. About 15 miles north of Titusville, Pennsylvania, in a borough called Spartansburg, there was a situation developing that would prove to be a trigger setting off a cataclysmic series of events. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. 2022, just two years ago, according to a local news outlet called Go Erie, there was a place called Platts Mill on Main Street. And as of 2022, it was the longest operating business in Spartansville, Pennsylvania. That's way cool. Mm-hmm. Now, the owner and president of Platts Mill at 110 Mill Street in Spartansburg was selling his mill to retire. And that mill had been run by his family for four generations. Okay, tell me a little bit about the mill. Platts Mill was the original grist mill site begun by the Atkins brothers in the 1830s. What's a grist mill? Good question. A grist mill is a facility where grain is ground into flour. Okay. And because of the mill located in that area in the 1830s, there was a dam that was constructed on Oil Creek in 1855. And this dam supported not only that mill, but other mills in the area as well. Like, for example, the same Atkins family who owned Platt's Mill also owned a sawmill on Oil Creek. A sawmill, of course, is known as a lumber mill or a facility where logs are cut into lumber. So you have all kinds of different manufacturing locations or mills on Oil Creek that are supported by the dam. Got it. So what's the importance of a dam? Like, why do they need a dam to run these things? Oh, my gosh. I totally looked into this. In the 1890s, (laughs) dams were super important for powering mills, especially in areas where other power sources weren't readily available. There is no one on Earth more excited to have researched dams than you. Do you know how a dam works? Like, seriously, do you know how a dam works? Yes, I do. All right. So talk to me. Like, how does a dam work? All right. Explain. So there's water storage. What do you mean? So dams serve as a very large storage system. They hold back water in a reserve. Yes. Creating 
a higher water than would have been there right. if we didn't dam it. Right. So a dam is essentially a wall or a barrier. And on right. one side, that's where the reservoir is. And that water gets to build up and build up and build up. And so there's a higher water level on one side of the dam than the other. Now, why is this important? It's important because that stored water is released in a controlled way to flow down a channel or a pipe, gaining speed and energy due to gravity. And at the bottom, that's where the rushing water hits the blades of the water wheel or the turbine, causing it to spin. And that then creates the mechanical power to run the machinery inside the mill, right? Via a system of gears and shafts. Converting, You're very excited. I am about this. so excited. Converting <laughs> the water's kinetic energy into the mechanical energy to do the work inside the mill, to turn the machinery parts, to be able to grind the flour and you know saw logs in a lumber mill. Yeah, interesting. It's so important because in in times where the water is running quickly. Mills could rely on the energy from the rivers to move the the mechanisms in their mill and things would be fine. But in times of drought, it would dry up and everything would stop. And so because they were able to create dams, they could control that water supply. They could keep a reservoir to make sure that the water kept moving. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. But as helpful as dams are, Mm -hmm. we should talk about some of the drawbacks to having a dam. Well, okay, let's or talk damming. about So what do you imagine would be one of the drawbacks, just in general, looking away from the outline for a second? Like you have a dam, you built a wall to control the water so it can it can fuel your manufacturing center. So what do you what do you see as some of the drawbacks? Well, I'm thinking specifically of wildlife. So mm-hmm. now we're controlling water. So the the natural flow of a river is being changed or diverted. So the wildlife would have to change their access to where they're getting the water. Okay, interesting. And I'm thinking about it's- settlements downriver that are maybe depending on water to like come down and maybe, you know, by creating a dam, you're changing a different community's access to water. Like that kind of sucks. Yeah, 100%. Hang in there, guys. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to unveil the first book in our series entitled Common Mystics Present Ghost on the Road, Volume 1, Murders and Mysterious Deaths. It's everything you love about Common Mystics and more. It's a retelling of 10 of our favorite stories from our pod with exciting extras. Extras like souvenirs, what we took away from the experience, and what to know if you go if you decide to travel in our footsteps. Pre-order the Kindle edition now. All other formats of the book will be available for purchase at Amazon.com on July 1st, 2023. Thanks, guys. Now back to the show. The other thing that comes to mind is the amount of physical pressure that is created on the dam as it holds back that water. See this again, triggering my fear. Like I already have a lump in my throat. I can see your anxiety rising. It really does. It really makes me anxious. Like, yeah. It's like, it's like pulling back the rubber band on a slingshot. It's like you're building that physical, physical, physical pressure and just one flick of your fingers releases it. Okay. Okay. And so now 
let me take you to the spring of 1892 as you're having that wonderful metaphor of the rubber band intention. <sighs> Tell me what happens. In the spring... 1892. In the spring of 1892, heavy rain fell over northwest Pennsylvania, culminating in massive flooding. And I just want to say that a recent National Weather Service article was written about this event in 1892. This rainfall was like an event. It was like you felt like Noah was building an ark mm. somewhere because it rained all of May and that shit just kept going down in into the summer months. Oh, so continue. On the evening of June 4th, 1892, the flooding of Oil Creek was so extreme that it flooded the areas all along its banks, including the towns of Titusville and Oil City. Let me just say, let's just stop there. That's freaking bad enough. Like, there's yeah. nothing more anxiety-producing than sitting in my house during a really bad rainstorm and hearing my sump pump work and watching the water around my house get higher and higher because there's literally nothing you can do. Literally nothing you can do except for pray. I swear the city of Kalamazoo, like every two years, is literally underneath like feet of water. Oh like, and that is like the 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 saturated ground just can't hold mm -hmm. any more water that it just rises up and creates pools around the city. All right. Literally. So can we like just stop right years. here? If we stopped right here, this would be bad enough. This would be like yeah, story. It sucks. Yeah, this this sucks. This is you're taking shit out of your basement. <laughs> you're wearing your galoshes. Yeah. We're in the 21st century and it still sucks. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now go to the 19th century and let's see how badly. All right. Back to 1892 in Titusville. The Titusville Water and Gas Works was flooded with a significant amount of water. Okay. By midnight. Okay, so it already sucks. So if you're in Titusville in the spring of 1892, shit sucks. Right. And not only are homes flooding, but manufacturing centers are flooding. The gas so works. industries. Yeah. The oil works. Okay. Mm -hmm. By midnight, the Spartansburg Dam had burst. The dam burst. Okay. So that's letting go of that rubber band on your slingshot. Mm-hmm. It sent a massive wave of water down Oil Creek, destroying, completely destroying several, several oil refineries. And this is the thing. Back in the 19th century – they didn't really have a healthy respect and understanding to these chemicals and the power behind them, right? right. So they were kind of all loosey-goosey with the regulations <laughs> of how they were storing like, these What things. regulations? Exactly, exactly. As these oil refineries were destroyed, oil, pure oil, as well as chemicals like benzene and naphtha were spewed into the floodwaters. Do you know anything Fuck. about benzene and naphtha? I think I might have done it when I was in my teens. <laughs> Chill. <laughs> benzene and naphtha. I mean, I tried it once, I'm sure. <laughs> benzene and naphtha are highly, highly flammable liquids that can form explosive mixtures in the air. No. Yes. 
Oh, no. These industrial chemicals are harmful if just ingested or inhaled and cause skin irritation. And benzene in particular is a known human carcinogen. So Jesus. that alone, now you have flood waters with these caustic, harmful chemicals. And together with the oil, they're forming a dangerous cocktail on the surface of the flood waters. Fuck. Now, um, okay, so let's, I'm just gonna, just gonna paint this picture. So I'm living in Titusville. The water has risen to a, a, a point where it is lifting containers of what was carcinogens and gases. The oil. And now, th- and, and it's all over now, this flooded river. And I do not know that miles north of me, a dam in Spartansburg has been compromised. And it's midnight. And it's midnight. And it's midnight. So you're probably asleep. And, and so are your children. I'm probably not sleeping <laughs> that night. I'm telling you right now, I am. there is not enough alcohol or Xanax in the 19th century to put my ass to sleep. And there is a wave, a wave of water and dangerous chemicals heading your way. Uh-oh. And here's what happened. As the morning progressed, the water began to catch fire and there were massive explosions. Around 4 a.m., the tanks from the International Oil Works on Monroe Street in Titusville burst into flames, setting fire to buildings along the surrounding streets. And as the flooding worsened, families and business owners were forced to evacuate their homes. By 8 a.m., the floodwaters were eight feet tall. As the wall of water spread through town, rescue boats were sent in by train to help evacuate survivors. Around 10 a.m., there were 5,000 spectators lining the banks of Oil Creek watching the disaster unfold. The combination of a naphtha and other chemicals rose into the air, and the entire scene was covered in an eerie yellow fog. There were flashes and bangs from upriver, and suddenly there was fire everywhere. Flames stretched to 500 feet in the air, with smoke billowing from it even higher. Buildings exploded as the volatile gas and oil ignited. 75 homes were burned, and Titusville itself was completely leveled. I'm going to say something about newspaper reporting in the late 1800s. And I will tell you that it is often very flowery, very dramatic because newspapers were a form of entertainment as well as news. Yeah, very hyperbolic. And they had so, so few entertainment, you know, venues, outlets at the time. But reading the newspaper articles that came out in June of 1892 after this disaster they get it right. The the drama, the language describes this event like the apocalypse. And literally, and it's true. For once, they get it right. Like it's horrific. Literally, you're describing hell to me. Mm-hmm. Like there is molten, like fire and brimstone and there's a lake of fire and a river of fire coming at me. And when you described 5,000 people on the banks, 
Those are 5,000 people that are watching their town. Yeah. It's not like 5,000 people came there to watch it. No, they they managed to get to the banks of the river as opposed to like in the swirl of fire and shit going around. Yeah. And they're watching their lives burn up. But also, I want to couple that, which they don't know what's coming next. They don't know if they're at a safe distance. Yeah. They don't know. They're hearing explosions and they don't know if more water's coming. Right. They don't know if the fire is going to get them. They don't know if they're far enough away. And that in itself gives me an anxiety attack. Jill, did you raise your hand on Zoom? No. As you were talking, you talking your hand raised. You know the little icon? I'm getting the chills right now. That's creepy as fuck because I'm not like you're, you're not, in my little box. Th- you guys, and- we are recording on Zoom right now. And Jill is talking okay. about the feelings of the spirits. And as she's talking with her hands, I can see her hands. That little hand raised icon came up. So I don't know who just- Not even touching my keyboard. <laughs> ah! Okay. So that's validation from fucking spirit right now. That they were scared as fuck. <laughs> They're like, yes, like, Jill. Yes. yes, Jill, you got it. You knew. Preach. Preach. It's like you were there. Oh yeah, God. no, for real. Think about that though. All right. Like 5,000 people are like, fuck, what's happening next? No like, you don't know what's happening next. And the only thing that I can think about if, if I put my Jilly ego self into that is like the night of 9 11. Yeah. Like, not you don't know what's. what's yeah, you're like, fuck, anything can happen right now. Oh, my God. But not even because 9 11, you weren't watching your specific house, your community, like being right. flooded. Right. If you and were a New burned. Yorker. Yeah, that's true. That's but, true. Yeah. If you were a New Yorker yeah. on like the Hudson watching. Point. Yeah. Ugh. The entire business district of Titusville, Pennsylvania was damaged and destroyed by the floods and subsequent fires. Spartansburg, upstream of Titusville, saw significant damage but did not sustain the effects of the fires that happened in Titusville. The Burning Creek advanced southward into the next community, Oil City, and by 6 a.m., it struck. Alarms were raised all over town, with the creek cresting at about 9 or 10 a.m. To make matters even worse, several tankers holding benzene were located along the banks of the creek, and the whole upper end of Oil City on both sides of Oil Creek was inundated. The benzene became ignited and burned most of the second and third wards with 200 to 300 buildings. At the end of the day, rescue committees had been formed to help the homeless, and rescue efforts continued to search for survivors. The death toll stood at 90 with many, many more missing. And at midnight, rescue workers found and saved 16 adults and five children stranded behind Oil City Barrel Works. The final death toll was 132. The property damage exceeded $1,500. This was a pretty just, significant event. Can you imagine being at home and seeing in a distance a burning creek headed your way? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, it's biblical. It literally. It, it's biblical. And it's it's known as the worst flood-related disaster in Pennsylvania other than the catastrophic Johnstontown flood of 1889, a few years mm-hmm. earlier. Both disasters stemmed from a dam bursting. Let's go to our voice list. We, I mean, I feel like there's so many. Yeah, um, like 132. But, 
Yeah. Not, and that's not to mention the survivors yeah. that are maimed or have like lived afterwards with the cancer carcinogens in their body right. from inhaling right. that all night. Or got sick We're, or burned or... And the survivors who lost family members. Yes. Yeah. Tell me. Tell me about one of those survivors. We met him, Jacob Bingenheimer. Mm-hmm. At the time of the 1892 flood, Jacob and his wife Susan and their children, like I mentioned, were living in Titusville. Their youngest child had just been born in May of that year, their eighth child, a baby boy. And of course, the tragedy of the devastating flood and fire when it ravaged the area, Susan and all eight of their children perished in the ruins of their home. On June 8th, 1892, at 10 a.m., Jacob bid his entire family farewell. They were laid to rest at Dutch Hill Cemetery. As you can imagine, it was a somber procession as all nine of the coffins were carefully maneuvered through the remnants of town, carried by hand across the railroad bridge to their final resting place. But the ordeal was compounded by the aftermath of fire and explosions, which left many bodies unrecognizable due to severe burns. But there is controversy, even surrounding the death and burial of the children. Within days, it gets worse. Oh, I know it gets so much worse for Jacob. Once you're like, "Oh my God, this poor man!" You're right. Let's and put it to rest. Are. Let's put this whole thing to rest. No, within days, mm, nope. There were suspicions that three of the members of a different family, the Whalen family, were mistakenly buried instead of Benjamin children. Do you believe that? No. So they have to to alleviate dig mm-hmm. up. They have to dig up. Poor Jacob. Poor Jacob. He has to stand aside and watch his family be dug up. Oh, my God. For further examination. Exactly. So they were exhumed. The Bingenheimer children's remains were exhumed. And authorities meticulously examined the remains, employing additional measures to ensure the accurate identification. And the children were once again laid to rest, bringing a semblance of peace, finally, to Jacob's shattered heart. Oh, Oh, Jacob, I am so sorry. Okay, Jill. So, Jen. Jill. Fuck. Right? Just fuck. Oh, my God. Your hand is still raised, by the way. Doesn't it go down automatically? I'm not touching it. So I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, why is this story relevant today? Okay, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you think the Bingenheimers knew about the Spartanburg Dam upriver and the risks of living downstream on Oil Creek? Do you think they knew that they were in danger, potentially? I do not. Mm. Do you? I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think, I think anybody thought about it at the time. I don't even think. Like, do you know if you live downstream from a dam? Like, do you know if well, your I, home is in danger from a dam bursting? Even if I did know, which again, spoiler alert, I did the research. Now I know. <laughs> now I fucking know. But even but back then, even if I did know the existence of the Spartanburg Dam and like, oh, you know, this maybe things don't work out and it just spills over, I would not be able to predict the fiery hell right. that was created because of that. 100%. Like, th- there's no way. 
So, no, I, I do not think that they knew. If they did know, I don't think they could imagine the devastation and destruction. But today, guys, we have resources. Ooh, like? Yeah, so, it, well, let me tell, tell you. Tell me. So, Jennifer, yes. do you know if you live downstream from a dam today? I don't know if I live downstream from a dam. Girl. Okay. So living near a dam today, you should have the understanding of exactly where you are near that dam and what the potential dangers are. Okay. And you can find that information out from FEMA.gov. Oh. Yes. FEMA. You know FEMA. I know FEMA. I don't know if I know what FEMA stands for, but I do know FEMA. Let me look. You keep talking. I'll look it up. Federal Emergency Management Agency. So FEMA is... FEMA.gov is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And you can go to FEMA.gov and say, hey, FEMA, am I in a flood zone? Mm. Mm-hmm. Should I be worried about flooding? Mm. Now, I think just in general that this kind of information when you're looking at property or a house, like I feel like this should be a part of it. Like, you know, like, how long was the house standing? Like, how new was the roof? Oh, you're in a flood zone. Well, I remember when I was buying my house, like, that's that's a part of it. Like, they have to disclose if you're in a flood zone. I think you can, like, look at Realtor.com or some different, like, websites, and they'll tell you if you're in an area that's prone to flooding. That's different from a damn freaking bursting. No, but in... Okay, so first of all, if you go to FEMA.gov, they will tell you from a safety perspective if you are near flood zones. Okay, okay. okay. They will tell you that, Good. which is important. Yeah, you need to, to know. Regardless. You need to know. Okay. But it also will tell you if that flood zone is affected by a nearby dam. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. That's what we're talking about. So, <laughs> so two things I did when I was Googling for me. I went to the National Registry of Dams. Oh. And so- that is a website that has been compiled by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I like it. So they tell you every inventory of dams, and then you cross-reference that with the FEMA.gov. And it tells you the safety perspectives that dams can present hazards due to the structure failures or flooding, particularly as the weather extremes get greater, right? right? So as we have more extreme weather, you are at a greater risk of flooding. Of course. And of course, the dams are at a greater risk of failing, okay? Yes. So regular maintenance and modernizing are important and imperative for especially aging infrastructures like old ass dams. Modernizing, like dams built. right. So fixing, yeah. maintaining the integrity mm-hmm. of the dam. Yeah, that shit's important. That shit's important. Okay. So also, because keeping these dams, some of them, as you know, some of them can be taken out. Some of them like stay there for eco purposes. We already messed up the ecosystem. So they're like, maybe we should just leave this dam. But if you're going to leave a dam, especially old dams, it is really important to modernize and to keep record of what you're doing to it when, right? Right. So the dam on Clear Lake in Spartansburg today. Same dam. Our dam. Our dam that burst. Same dam. Oh, in 1892. Our dam that burst. Yep. Okay. Constructed in 1855. Jeez. And it's- an earthen dam, which means it's made of like earth like, like products, like dirt and stuff. Dirt, wood, rocks. Beaver. Think beaver. Oh, Lord. It was made by is, beavers. It was made 
to the design of beavers. Wow. Okay. So anything made of from the earth, they created this dam. Wow. And the thing is about earthen dams, although they're like, this is like the best made dams, beavers did it right. They face with erosion. Of course. Right? Yeah. When you have that that buildup of water, that extreme high pressure, yeah. as you so elegantly put it, the sides of the dam start eroding. Yes. And it gets worse by wind and rain. And there's spillage. And usually nowadays, like even back then, they had concrete to protect that kind of erosion. But when you have such extreme weathers, like, no, like there is no stopping it. Once the dam starts to corrode, it's just how long is this going to last before it just spills right over? So again, according to the National Inventory of Dams today, our dam is listed mm-hmm. as no longer being used for industry. Okay. okay. It's still there. It is a recreational dam. Okay. And it is being... it is owned now by the municipality, the Spartansburg Borough, okay? Okay. So our dam is there. It's no longer used for industry. It is used just for recreation. That means that the water built up on the other side of the dam, people be swimming in. Sure. And they're like boating, okay? Okay. So this dam is supposed to be inspected every two years. All dams, right, are supposed to be inspected every two years? I did not look okay, up all the dams. Okay. I'm just looking up this okay, dam. Okay, got you. Because there are, you guys, there is an insane amount of dams. It looked like America was diseased when I went, and they have all these little purple dots where the dams are. It literally looked like like there's dams everywhere. So if you, I would challenge everyone in the United States to go to the National Inventory of Dams and find your house and see how many dams are by you, because you would be shocked. Okay. I literally was shocked. Okay. okay. So anyway- This dam is supposed to be inspected every two years. The website itself wasn't updated since April 9th, 2021. So that's just when the last time the the registry was updated. Okay, Okay. So someone, someone has egg on their face. But the last time our dam, our dam in Spartansburg that caused all this havoc, Mm -hmm. the last time it was inspected was in October 2020. Okay. At that time. That's that's what was entered on the website, which has not been updated since April of 2021. Yes. Gotcha. So on this website, it says this dam needs to be updated every two years. We haven't been doing it. The last time it was updated is in 2020. That is four years ago. Now, the significant hazard clarification posted regarding this dam specific hazard to the community and those downstream is a significant hazard potential. What? Why? So that means, well, we know why. I mean, because, so yeah. why? Okay. So what I would like to know is I would like someone to please update that website. Could you please update that website? Because right now it looks like you guys haven't done shit since October of 2020, but we don't really know that because someone needs to update that website. Like, can we please have that data? Because that's pretty freaking important. It's really scary that it's like, no, this dam is like hazardous. Like we know it's hazardous. You know it's hazardous. But no one's like, Like, yeah, no one's uh, like following up with that. Like that should be like a follow up. Like let's check on that hazardous dam. Right. Like put an alert on your phone. Like update that shit. Yeah. 
So the only comfort that you should know from that website of our hazardous dam that looks like it hasn't been inspected in four years is that they do have an emergency action plan in place. An EAP okay, what is, is what it? we call it. So an emergency action plan is written instructions on how the public should organize in the event of a catastrophic disaster. Cool. Okay. Per FEMA, an EPA is a formal document that identifies the potential emergency conditions as if a dam were going to burst or corrode, mm-hmm. and the actions people should take to reduce the property damage or loss of life. This is a thing, though. This is a thing. You have to go get that information before a disaster happens. Like, when a disaster is happening, that's really great that they have an EAP on on the files at FEMA. But if you don't know what that is, that's not going to do you any good in the event of a disaster, right? I mean, so it, again, it looks like the plan is to to like get out. Like that's the plan. Like find your evacuation route and get out. Okay, but like during a fire drill in school, you need to know your evacuation route. Mm-hmm. And you need to know, like, where to meet up, where to tell people that you're safe, right. like that kind of thing. You're and scaring me, Jill. I don't want to talk about this. I Well, I'm sorry. I'm just – this is why it's significant today. We always want to bring significance. It's significant today because, first of all, you don't know where your dams are. I don't. Second of all, your ass is living in a flood zone. And third of all, you don't know your EAP. I don't. And no one's giving it to you until the time of disaster. Now, I would argue that some regularly hit areas with natural disasters like hurricanes and things like that, they know their evacuation plans are planned out on, like, the streets. Like, when we were in New England, it said evacuation plan this way. But if you don't know that you're living downstream from a dam and you don't know that you are subject to an evacuation plan, that's kind of scary to me. Yeah. So... Yeah, so okay. that's what I'm going to leave you with. Okay. You have homework. Look up <laughs> where your dams are. Look if you're in a potential downstream of a dam. And then ask your local municipalities what your evacuation plan is and check and demand them to update those Websites. that listing of that dam just to make sure you're <sighs> safe. Okay, good plan. Titusville, thank you. I'm looking at you. Thank you for that, that PSA. Let's review our hits. Yeah. Why do you think you were picking up on like an oil baron? Well, I think it's obvious that this was the creation of oil wealth and oil barons in the United States. Mm, yeah, the in the world. In the world. In the yeah. world. Gas and lumber mm-hmm. industry, Ma- tell me. Well, major resources in the area. Major resources mm-hmm. in the area, not just oil but also gas and lumber. Tell me about, I love this. I love that your image in your mind's eye of that documentary, explain it again, because that's crazy. Oh my God. Okay. So in my mind's eye, I had an image of a PBS documentary that I saw, like, I want to say Ken Burns, but I'm not sure if it's really Ken Burns, but he is the genius behind every PBS documentary as far as I'm concerned. But there was a town living downstream from a recreational dam and the dam burst in the middle of the night and the entire town was lost. And and that was the um, flood-related disaster in Pennsylvania in 1889, the Johnstown flood. Wow! So that was that image. Wow, was what I saw in my wow. head. Wow, I'm getting goosebumps. When I knew about children dying, I think, I think I was picking up on Jacob Bingenheimer and and his family. 
in particular. It makes, it's the saddest. And as we talked about before, they kept moving around the town. I wonder if Jacob was thinking like, oh, if we didn't move there on Mechanic oh. Street, if we stayed on Elm Street, you know? What do you think about the fact that we were, we were being pulled uphill and also north when we were driving around Emlinton? Two things occur to me. One – as like channeling spirit, you would want to get uphill. Yes. You don't want to be. Yes. As the flood was yes. coming, as the waters, yes, everybody would want to get uphill and it wouldn't have been easy. No, it would have been a struggle. Yeah. And you wouldn't know the easiest way uphill the way we didn't know the easiest way uphill as we were going through that town. What about the, the sense that we needed to go north? What do you think was north? Well, Titusville was definitely yes. north. The dam was north yes. of Titusville. Yes. It all mm-hmm. originated north. I'm really surprised that I picked up on the explosions and that is crazy explosions talk. related to gas because I mean that's why that's why the river blew up. It was because those gaseous, the liquid chemicals and the oil, you know, they created gases and and got inflamed. Do you think it's accurate to have that sense of pride for people that had been in these areas before? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A lot of pride. A lot of people made their living here and worked here and created an industry here. What An industry that fueled the country. Exactly. What about the name Crawford? Oh, my God. Well, Crawford was important because of the natural gas aspect, but also Crawford County is where Titusville is. It's where our dam was, right? It's Spartan. I'm not sure if Spartansburg is in Crawfordsville. I think it is. I think it is. I'm not sure 100%. But Titus- Not the point. Yeah. But- Titusville, definitely. Titusville, definitely, which is where Jacob lived. Right. And what about the river trail seeming important and the feeling of flood? Again, cheap, but it's a hit. (laughs) Sure. But then that feeling in the cemetery of not being able to find people who died in the disaster and that confusion regarding the cemetery, I think that goes to that confusion regarding some of the members of the Bingenheimer family. And were they the Bingenheimers or were they the Wayland? You know what I mean? Like that that whole situation and then the grief. The grief surrounding the family and so many other families. I just can't even imagine. Like we think of disasters. It was Jacob's story that really highlighted for me the identification and the processing of healing, right? Like how to get these bodies to rest, how to maneuver the, the coffins throughout this devastated town. I mean, I didn't even think of that until I thought of Jacob's story. Whatever happened to Jacob, do we know? We do know. Tell me. Mm. So Jacob, two years after the disaster, he married again. He married Hattie. And she also lived through the Titusville disaster. The couple moved to rural New York State. Yeah, they did. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Fuck yeah, they No, did. they didn't settle on a river either. Bet you anything. <laughs> they had no children. Mm. Jacob continued his career as a boiler maker. Hattie was a homemaker. Sadly, Hattie passed away in 1916, and Jacob didn't pass. He passed very away long just after. Yeah, 14 months later. Just, mm-hmm. And they were both buried in a rural cemetery in New York State. I'm glad that he found love again. Yeah. It's still a heartbreaking situation. I'm glad that he found love again with someone who was also had a real understanding of the devastation he went through. You know what I mean? Mm. 
like they both lived through it so they both probably had this this yeah bonding, this bonding. over the grief yeah. of what they lost so in closing i want to say please you guys please check out the national inventory of dams just check it out. Mm-hmm. Put your zip code in, find out your nearest dam, and then cross-reference that information with the FEMA.gov website to find not only if you're downstream, but also what your emergency evacuation plans should look like and when you should be worried and thinking about this. Mm. Like if there's extreme weather or, or saturated soils and a lot of a lot of rain, that's when you look at it. Mm. Okay. Tell the people where they can find us. Please check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on all our socials at Common Mystics Pod. Please listen in wherever you're listening to your favorite pods. Please consider leaving us a positive review. We love reading them. You guys don't even know how much they mean to us. And subscribe, download, like, and share. Share, share, share. We're growing and we love seeing our numbers multiply. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you all. Good night. Bye. This has been a Common Mystics Media production. Editing done by Yokai Audio, Kalamazoo, Michigan.